You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews, <laughs> gotcha. If you turn to Philippians, <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, uh, we're going to be in verses 1 and 2 today as we start this new series, Lessons in Unity. So we're going to be six weeks through this uh, passage from Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1 through verse 18, uh, over the course of these next weeks. So I encourage you again to uh, daily, weekly, be reading through that entire passage, asking God what He wants you to, to learn from that, what He wants us to learn from that, and, and uh, make that a part of your, your daily and weekly reading is Philippians 2, 1 through 18. But today we're just going to be dealing with the first two verses as we start off with this. Um, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say that in our culture today, we have deep, persistent divides, and they are rooted and ingrained in our culture and in our world, and they continue to do so, and they are bleeding over into the church as well. Um, I, I heard on talk radio a couple weeks ago a guy was referencing this study and that had just been done by a group called uh, the Center for Politics, which is a nonpartisan uh, group out of Virginia. And I wanted to share with you just a few of the things that they had found in their study that helps us to see even more clearly how this divide is going on right now. What they did is they presented a series of statements, the first one being this, that the other party, whoever the other party is for you, is presenting a clear and present danger to American democracy. And 80% of the Democrats who were in the study strongly agreed, and 84% of the Republicans who were in the survey strongly agreed. Then it, then it got a little more personal, not just the party, but Americans who support the other party have become a clear and present danger to the American way of life. 75% of the Democrats voters uh, who were surveyed said they strongly agreed. 78% of the Republican voters strongly agreed. They asked this statement, you have concern that you or someone close to you will experience personal loss or suffering due to the policies of the other party. 80% of the Democratic voters strongly agreed. 82% of the Republican voters strongly agreed. They asked about media, and, and understanding the media, this was the other guy's media. So this was Democrats thinking about the far-right media, Republicans th thinking about the far-left media, and that the media should be censored due to their spreading of lies and disinformation. 78% of Democrats believed, yes, they strongly agreed, 73% of Republicans. Now, this one's not on your screen, but this one kind of shook me to the core, very honestly. Nearly half, 44% of the Democratic voters surveyed, 46% of the Republican voters surveyed, believed that the president, whoever he should be, should be able to take whatever action he wants without constraint of the Congress and the courts. Nearly half. That's not a president, that's a dictator. And these divisions are deep through our culture, deep through our society, and guess what? They are running deep within our churches. The study also asked, among institutions in our culture, how many of you have or what percentage of you have 
a great confidence or quite a lot of confidence in these institutions. In the institution of Congress itself, the percentage of people who had great or quite a lot of confidence in Congress since the year 2000 has dropped 12%. The Supreme Court, that percentage has dropped 11%. TV, news media, that percentage has dropped 20%. Church and organized religion has dropped 19% since the year 2000. Why? Because all the things of our culture are weaving themselves into the church. There's all kinds of studies and articles and things that have been written and are being written about particularly why we are seeing more young people leave the church than we ever have before. But I can tell you one of the common things that is always through those studies is that the church looks too much like everybody else. Too divided, looks too much like everybody else in the way we do things, and they don't want to be a part of that. Bill Wilson, the director of the Center for Healthy Churches, makes this statement in an article. American Christians are destroying our churches from the inside out. We've seen it coming for years, and with the stress of the pandemic, along with the coarsening of public life, the dark side of social media, and the ongoing decline of most church metrics, metrics simply being how we measure a church, so attendance and budget and so on and so forth, the decline of most church metrics have created a perfect storm. And he goes on to talk about church conflict, unhealthy church conflict. And he says this, church conflict is a gift that keeps on giving for the years to come. It's kind of like trying to put toothpaste back into a tube. So what's the answer? What's the answer to all of this division? What's the answer to all these things that are weaving themselves through the, the culture and into our church? The answer is partly this. Number one, realize that the answer we're going to talk about today and over the next six weeks is the answer for the church. It's not for the culture. It's for the church. We're not responsible for the culture. Our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ, born again to a living hope in Jesus, indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, our responsibility to the culture is to live in such a way and share our faith in such a way to, that they see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of his gospel and they respond to it. That is our responsibility to the culture, to go and make disciples. So the answers that we're going to talk about today are not for the culture, they're for us. We're not responsible for the way they act. I tell my kids, I've told my two oldest for years, I'm now telling my two youngest, when there's some place where there are other kids and, and other things are going on and maybe other kids are doing something they're not supposed to do or something like that, I, I always tell my kids, and maybe some of you all have said something like this to your kids as well, when they come to me and say, well, so-and-so's doing it or they're, they're acting this way, my response is, I'm not responsible for them. I'm responsible for you. And church, we're not responsible for them. We're responsible for us. Lost people act because they're lost. Unchurched people act the way they act because they're unchurched. People without the Spirit of God dwelling within them act the way they act because they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. 
And so our responsibility as we look forward through the next few weeks and deal with this issue of unity is that these are answers that Paul gives in this letter of Philippians to us. To us. And that we are bearing responsibility for those divides. Real quick backdrop of this letter. Paul's imprisoned. He talks about it several times in chapter 1. A person from the church of Philippi named Epaphroditus has apparently visited him in prison and brought with him not only a gift that the church gave Paul, but also he's, he's come apparently with a report from what's going on at the church. And we can deduce from the way Paul writes back to the church that one of the issues was division. We have this in chapter 2 that speaks of a very general combating division and unity. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, there's a very specific piece of division that Paul addresses between two women in the church who were his co-workers for the gospel and a, a division that was going on there. And this is why Paul writes what he writes. So let's read verse 1 as we get into it today, as we look at these two pieces we're going to learn. Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This, well, this first thing is the toolkit that every Christian has for unity. Verse 1 is a toolkit for unity. If you've got your Bible open, I'd like you to, to look at the end of chapter 1, beginning verse 27, so we can kind of see these as a lead-in to what Paul writes here. He's been writing about his imprisonment. He's been writing about how the gospel's been advanced in spite of it and all the things that God is doing. And he says in verse 27 of chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So those verses lead us into chapter 2, and look at what he says in those verses. He talks about them, striving side by side, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, not frightened in anything by your opponents. He says actually there in verse 28 that if they do this, if they stand firm, if they strive for the gospel, if they don't have fear, that it will be a clear sign to them of their destruction. The word destruction there is a word that means termination by damage beyond repair or causing it to cease to exist. And essentially what Paul is saying is, church, if you will raise up and do this, the church at Philippi and now the church in the world that exists today, if you will raise up and strive, if you will raise up and stand firm, if you will be side by side with one another for the faith of the gospel, then what it will point out to your opponents is that their end is destruction. But when we fail to do that and we look like they do, then what that says to them is their way is right. And so on the heels of that, he says this in putting, giving us this toolkit. If there is, and he names off these things. I want to address that really quickly because it, it kind of reads in the English like Paul saying, well, maybe if we have these things or if these things exist, but it's written more in a way, if you can remember back to your, to your school years, those of you who are out of school, you had these things called if-then statements. 
if this was true, then this was true, or if, if this was true, then this result would happen. And that's essentially the way Paul is writing here. He's writing if these things exist, but he's really saying since these things exist, for the believer, let's go by them one, one by one. Encouragement in Christ. If encouragement in Christ exists, then we have a work before us. In Hebrews 10.25, a few weeks ago, we talked about that issue of encouraging one another. And I, and I shared with you that that word there means to come alongside of or come beside of a person as you're doing that encouragement. Here, it's the noun form of it, but it's the same meaning. And here what Paul is pointing to is that the encouragement in Christ tells us that Christ is our source of that encouragement. As we're called to encourage one another in places like Hebrews 10, 25, we draw from Christ in order to be able to do that. How? Because the Bible teaches we are in Christ. We are in Christ individually, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is a new cre- uh, believes in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are in Christ individually. We are communally together in Christ in that we're connected with him and then thereby connected with one another. Paul says in Galatians 3, 25 through 27, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. All of you are one in Christ. Now, I'm going to hit on this again later, but I want you to to think about what I just said. He says, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. He's preaching and teaching unity, but not uniformity. It's not that the Greek did not have any of their Greek heritage or traditions. not that the Jew did not have any of their Jewish heritage or traditions. not that they all started speaking the same language. It's not that they all became just like one another, but they became unified because they are in Christ. He says, if there is encouragement in Christ, he says, if there is comfort from love, it really is better read and understood in this way, comfort from his love, because all of these things in this toolkit are available to us through Christ and through the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. There's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort from his love. Comfort meaning, again, to come alongside. It's very similar to this idea of encouraging But it's specifically here is a word that means coming alongside to speak. You can encourage someone without speaking to them necessarily, but you comfort people with your voice and your words. How many times maybe have you had a child, a child who's crying, maybe they got hurt, maybe they had a bad day at school, uh, whatever the case may be. And you know from that perspective, if you've ever had that, it doesn't do you any good to stand above the child and go, oh, you're going to be okay. Just get over it. You'll be fine. What matters to that child in that moment is when you drop to a knee and you get on their level and you come alongside and you speak, it's okay. I got you. You don't have to be scared. This is, this is the word that Paul's using here to talk about how Christ comes to us in our distress, in our sadness, in our grief, in our trouble, in our loss, in everything that we experience in our life. He kneels to speak to us. And as a side note to that, understand this. John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they listen and they follow me. It's imperative that we train ourselves to hear his voice. It's imperative that we take time in in not only personal Bible study and prayer, but in communal Bible study and prayer because we are all in Christ. 
that we are able to train ourselves to hear his voice and listen and follow it because for every time he speaks to us, there's a thousand other voices speaking to us. So we train ourselves to hear his voice. He says as the third thing, is there participation in the spirit or some translations use fellowship. Like the issue of encouragement, this is individual and communal. Individually, I have participation in the Holy Spirit of God because he dwells within me. Communally, we all have participation in the Holy Spirit of God because we are one in Christ, according to Galatians 3. And it is this Greek word called koinonia. Acts 2.42 is a place we see it when, when Luke is recording about the early church. And he says they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and the prayer and the teaching and the fellowship. And they were all gathered in one name and, and they all gathered in one purpose. And that specific phrase that he uses there in Acts 2.42, the teaching and the fellowship is connected. And that tells us something that tells us that the fellowship and the participation of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here is not probably what we tend to think of as fellowship because it's fellowship and participation connected with the Holy Spirit of God. Adrian Rogers, the great pastor from Bellevue many, many years ago, makes this statement about it. What is fellowship? Fellowship is not coffee and donuts. It means to hold things in common. He goes on to say, try some fellowship of the Spirit. Get a prayer partner. Get somebody that you meet with. Study the Word of God with that person. Get into a Sunday school class. Let the Spirit of God melt you together. See, you, you can have coffee and donuts with somebody who doesn't have the same ideals as you, and that is a form of fellowship, but what Paul is talking about here and what the scriptures really teach over and over is that there is a fellowship or a participation in the Spirit that is only achievable by people who have the same commonality spiritually wise. And that when we miss out on that fellowship, when we miss out on that participation, we miss out on God's goal for our lives. Robert Weber in his book, Common Roots, Put it this way, the new creation from 2 Corinthians 5.17 is concretized, meaning set firm in the fellowship of faith. And the immediate focus of a community for each Christian is the local body of believers. Again, we do have a focus outside the body of believers. We are supposed to be engaging in evangelism and witnessing and missions and doing the things that bring people to the kingdom through God's power and his work. But our first focus is one another with whom we share the commonalities of the Holy Spirit of God. And we have, should have participation and fellowship driven by that. You say, well, how do I know if our fellowship or my participation is being driven by the Spirit? Well, just take Galatians 5.22 and 23 and use it as a measuring stick. Is our participation and fellowship in the Spirit driven by love, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Is it being driven by that or is it being driven by other things? Participation in the Spirit is driven by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, he uses this phrase, affection and sympathy. Affection is just deeply felt compassion. The King James Version uses the word bowels here, meaning the pit 
of the stomach because ancient peoples regarded that physical area of a person's body to be the place where all of their emotions were seated. And it makes sense, right? Because when you're emotionally churned up, so is this place. And he says we have affection, we have deep affection for one another. Jesus uses the same word as the word compassion in Matthew 14 and 15 when he feeds the 5,000 and then the 4,000. He says he looked upon the people and he had compassion for them. Affection, deep, deep feeling. And it's affection and sympathy. Sympathy simply being the awareness and the acknowledgement of suffering. You might say, well, why is sympathy involved here? Look back to verse 29 for just a moment to remind us that what Paul wrote earlier was this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And we are so foreign to the idea of suffering being a gift of God. Oh, that's a gift for people in that other part of the world, but not for us. That's a gift for other economic or social classes, but not for us. And yet the reality is Paul, Peter in his letters, James, others who write, talk about this issue of suffering for the gospel, suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering for the faith of Christ, and that in that he grants us this sympathy. He comes and he kneels and he helps us participate in the Spirit and work through those things. So let's look at 2, 1 and 2 again to put it together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, the toolkit, comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we have the toolkit of unity, now we have the objective of unity. Possessing the toolkit as Christian brothers and sisters, what is the objective? Well, Paul gives the first objective here is to complete my joy, he says. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul goes through this long list of all the things that he suffered through for the sake and the cause of Christ and the gospel. And in verse 28, he says, On top of all that, I have the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In other words, what Paul said was, for every church I've had a hand in, for every church that I was moved by the Spirit to to start, for every region that I've gone to, I carry a daily anxiety for them. Now, I am no Paul, but this is now the third church I've been a part of. I've been a part of a, a ministry in Honduras, and I can say with great assurance, I understand what Paul's saying Because for every church, every person in those churches, every person in those ministries that I've been involved in, almost daily, I think about them. Daily, I pray for them because they're on my daily prayer list. And when I hear of bad things that are going on, I weep. When I hear of good things that are going on, I rejoice. But I carry that with me. But but I want to say this. I don't think that burden is to be carried by pastors alone. We have this phrasing in our world sometimes where uh, sometimes in in issues of corporations or companies or sometimes in issues of athletic teams, we use this phrase, it's important to have buy-in, right? That everybody takes ownership. And when it comes to the unity of the church, it's important to have buy-in, It's important to take ownership. 
It's important to weep for your church when you need to weep for your church and rejoice with your church when you need to rejoice for your church and everything in the middle. It doesn't, doesn't need to be, shouldn't just be carried by a few select persons. We all should be seeking to be able to say, as Paul says, hey, everybody, complete my joy. You should be able to say to me, complete my joy. We all should be able to say to the people around you, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, he says. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I want to I extract for just a moment that having the same love piece. Because being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind, all essentially say the same thing. And they all essentially say this, that we have a mindset with each other. And we have a mindset communally together in that we keep our focus on the purpose and the intent of the church. And the purpose and the intent of the church is this, to bring God to glory, to make much of his name, to make much of his kingdom, to be obedient to the call of God and the words of Christ, to be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to be living in such a way that an outside world who does not know him sees what we do and is attracted to him, not to us, but to him, and that's, that's our focus, that's our purpose, that's our intent. And so he's telling the church at Philippi, as he's telling us today, that same mind, full accord, one mind is keeping that at the forefront. This is where consumer-driven church falls short. Because consumer-driven church is all of us coming to church and going, well, I, I'm coming because they have youth this way or kids this way or because music sounds like this or it doesn't sound like this or they dress like this or they don't dress like this or they got stained glass or they don't have stained glass, they got a steeple, they don't have a steeple. And when we're all engaged in that, we can never keep the purpose and the intent of the church at the forefront. He says, be of one mind, be of one accord. This issue is, is greatly seen in Simon Peter's life. Matthew 16, verse 16, he says to Jesus in a declaration, you are the Christ. And then just a few verses later when Jesus says, okay, well, by the way, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, you're not. No, that's not the end goal for you. And Jesus says to him in verse 23 of Matthew 16, he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. Church, we are not unified when we are not of full accord and one mind on the things of God. He also says this issue of same love. Not only have that mindset, but have that same love. What love? What's obviously the love from Christ. It's obviously the love from God. It's obviously the love from the Holy Spirit. It's the way Jesus said it. A new commandment I give to you in John 13. Love one another. It was his answer to the scribe who wanted to know the greatest commandment, the greatest law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The spiritual wealth we possess of Christ from verse 1 should result in a spiritual walk worthy of that wealth in verse 2. Because we have it in Christ. Again, the issue here for the next six weeks is this issue of unity. Most of you probably know or understand the word symphony. 
and, and maybe you've even had a chance to, to be in, in, a, in, a, in a setting where you heard a symphony. And it's all of those different instruments and all those different talents and abilities coming together to make this really harmonious sound, right? You know the opposite of that word, cacophony? It's an irritating sound. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a nails against the blackboard sound. It's the sound right now, this time of year, when I walk outside and there's about 400 blackbirds over here in this farm, all on different pitches and different ranges and everything else, driving me crazy. And church is not to be a cacophony. Church is to be a symphony. We are to be acting and living in such a way that it's something beautiful is being presented to people. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13 as he begins that famous love chapter, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to now. Chuck, I hope I don't mess anything up. Without love. Without love. We are not a symphony without love. We are not a symphony without unity. We are not a symphony without recognizing the things that have been given to us in Christ and then putting them at work with one another for his glory and for his kingdom. I read this illustration this week and I called Don to check it out make sure it was right because sometimes you read illustrations and they're as made up as any fairy tale you can imagine. But she, is, she assured me it was right. When you have multiple pianos in a room that need to be tuned, they don't tune them to one another. They have this instrument called a tuning fork. And every piano gets tuned to the tuning fork so that every piano is perfectly right in pitch and key. We don't tune in unity to one another. Our tuning fork, if you will, is the Holy Spirit of God, the truth of his word, the power and the presence of that spirit. And when we want to walk in unity, we tune ourselves to him. Now, again, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean that we all have to look the same, act the same, talk the same. Unity also does not mean that we'll always get it right. Because sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But what unity does in those moments is drives us when we get it wrong to make the wrong right in the right way. Because we want to be a symphony. The church is to be countercultural. Where a church and where a culture breeds and feeds division, we must stand by side, stand side by side, striving with one another. For the sake and the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is ever an institution that people should have great faith in. It should be the church. And we have to strive side by side with one another. For the unity of it and the faith and sake of the gospel. To present it to people. So they may see the beauty of Christ. And what he has done for us. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.